from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. It's test flight. Captain Charles Yeager climbs down into the cockpit of the rocket craft. October 14, 1947, Edwards Air Force Base, California. Captain Charles E. Yeager flew the experimental X-1 faster than the speed of sound in level flight. The first man in the world to accomplish this feat. This spectacular flight was one of the greatest achievements since the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. On this episode of Newt's World, I want to talk about Chuck Yeager, and we're going to listen to Chuck Yeager talk about himself. He was a remarkable man, and his passing was a reminder that he was an example at a personal level of what American exceptionalism is all about, because he was a high school graduate from West Virginia who went on from there to remarkable achievements serving his country as a patriot, having unique physical talents that made him a remarkable pilot with apparently spectacular eyesight, and at the same time, somebody who had both a commitment to the profession of flying and who was eager to be fully involved in the development of modern aviation. It's estimated that in his lifetime, he flew 200 types of military aircraft. He had more than 14,000 flying hours, with over 13,000 of those in fighter aircraft. It all began at the beginning of World War II, when he joined up as an enlisted person 
and then found himself in what was at the time a program that you could get into as an enlisted person, and he became a pilot. He then got the equivalent of being a warrant officer in modern terms, and it was a very brief period where the Army Air Force was willing to have people who were not college graduates. I thought it was a great example of how America has moved from achievement to certification, that by the time, about a quarter century later, that he was extraordinarily skilled, extraordinarily experienced, held the world record as the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound and level flight. With all of that going for him, by the time we got to the Apollo program, if you didn't have a college degree, you couldn't be an astronaut. And so he ended up training the astronauts that he was not eligible to fly with. I just told you a little bit about how America had moved away from pure achievement and pure skill to an academic requirement that may or may not be as relevant, frankly. So to give you a flavor of how many things he did, see a guy born in a very small town in West Virginia in 1923. He's the second of five children. He grew up in Hamlin, which is a town of about 400, where his father drilled for natural gas in the coal fields. In 1940, he attends the Citizens Military Training Camp at Fort Benjamin Harrison, Indiana. And on September 12, 1941, enlisted as a private in the Army Air Corps. Now, he didn't think he was going to become a pilot at that point. He thought he was going to be a mechanic. But he saw a notice on a board about a month after he enlisted that said they were looking for high school graduates who could pass the physical for pilot training. He thought it would be fun, and he decided to apply and history was changed. Listen to Chuck for a minute, talking about that whole experience of joining the Army and becoming a pilot. Probably the recruiter was better than the Navy or the uh, or anyone else. Uh, <clears throat> and also, uh, I think there was a guy, uh, one of the guys who went through pilot training uh, about the year that I graduated from high school, and he came home. He, he was a pretty neat guy, and he said it was a fun job, but flying to me, uh, I never associated myself with it. And when I enlisted in the Army, it was just to be a mechanic. And uh, there was no intention to be a pilot or anything like that. In fact, when I got in in September 1941, I was trained as a mechanic, which was easy. I'd already had so much experience in in mechanical things like engines and, and things that Dad exposed us to all the time that uh, I was just trained and, and began working on uh, airplanes as crew chief. I serviced them, overhauled the engines and, and things like that. And then <clears throat> finally, and I recall sometime around, oh, the latter part of November 1941, I remember reading a, a notice on the bulletin board that if you were, were a high school graduate and 18 years of age uh, and could pass a physical, then you could apply for pilot training under the flying sergeant program. You wouldn't be a cadet or make lieutenant or be an officer when you graduated from flying school. You'd be a sergeant pilot. And it looked like a pretty neat deal. And I just did it just to be doing something. So I put in my application. And I recall taking my physical uh, on December the 4th, 1941, and passing it. And then just sweating it out for six months. Finally, they called me up for pilot training. But that, you know, it's just a matter of being at the right place at the right time. A few months later, on December 7, 1941, 
the United States entered World War II because the Japanese attacked us on Sunday morning at Pearl Harbor. Jaeger at that point was transferred to the Victorville Air Base, which is now the George Air Force Base in California. He worked on a training aircraft, AT-11 aircraft. He received promotions to private first class and to corporal. In the spring of 42, he got in an airplane for the very first time. He was the crew chief of the AT-11. An officer said, would you like to join him on a test flight? Jaeger got sick during the flight and said, boy, that was really uncomfortable. This was the only time he was in an airplane before he started pilot training. Most famous pilot of his generation. And here's his first experience. My first ride in an airplane wasn't any fun. Uh, as I recall, it was the spring of 42, and I was a Victorville and a crew chief on the AT-11, which was a twin-engine twin bombardier training airplane. And uh, I had overhauled one of the engines, and the engineering officer had to take the airplane up and check it out and asked me if I wanted to go along. And I'd never been in an airplane before, and I, and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to. So I got in and sat down in the seat and fastened the safety belt, and he took off. And he went over to one of the dry lakes down there, uh, very near Edwards, between Edwards and Victorville, and, and started shooting touch-and-go landings, and it was rough and turbulent. Pretty soon I got sick and threw up on my airplane. And, and it, it, to me, it was a very uncomfortable situation. So I didn't particularly care for it, but I'd already applied for pilot training. And so, uh, yeah, I went up. I think that's the only time I went up in my airplane, and that was it, until they called me up for pilot training. July 1942, the United States is deeply in the war, and... Jaeger goes to pilot training. By March of 43, he gets his pilot wings. He trained at various bases in the US and then went to England in November 1943. In an interview, he mentioned he learned how to fly a P-51 on one flight from the assembly base to their base. The next day, he took the airplane into combat. Listen to Chuck talking about what it was like to train for World War II. We trained in the United States before we went to England. We trained in P-39, little Bell Air Cobras. And uh, it was all dogfighting, air-to-ground gunnery, uh, dive bombing, skip bombing, buzzing, and, you know, really learning to fly a fighter. We were training to go overseas. And, and uh, <clears throat> being the maintenance officer, I also had a lot of fun, uh, you know, just running test stops on, on the airplanes when they came out of the maintenance. Yes, I was... I was no better than the rest of the fighter pilots. I had very good eyes, as a lot of the guys did, and also could dogfight. It's a matter of experience. And uh, and then when we went to England in November '43, and we got the first P-51s in Eighth Air Force. Uh, it's as I recall, we picked up a P-51. I'd never been in one before and flew it from this assembly base down to our base in Leiston. And the next day, we're sitting over the middle of Germany fighting in them. You have to learn real quick. And uh, that's the way our pilots were. And as I recall, uh, I, uh, on my seventh mission, I shot down a 109. It was my first airplane that I shot down. We are on a raid uh, uh, to over Berlin, the first daylight bombing raid over Berlin. And I came home, and I saw a 109, and, and I nailed him and to me it was a, a lot easier than I thought it would be because you know we were a little bit apprehensive about dogfighting uh, the Germans and their fighters and they had a lot of experience dogfighting and we didn't and uh, so I nailed the guy but the next day I got shot down. On March 5th 1944 his life was changed because his plane was shot down by Germans while flying over France. 
the French Maquis, the French who were active in the underground resistance, helped him escape to neutral Spain. And while he was escaping, he helped another airman who had lost part of his leg get across the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. And as a result, Jaeger received a bronze star for heroism. But listen to his own description of being shot down. And again, remember, this is a guy who goes on to become the most famous pilot in the world. I was in a dogfight with the three 190s, and I got hit head-on with 20-millimeter cannon, and the prop came off the airplane part of the wing, the canopy, and it caught on fire. So me and the airplane party companies, that's, that's the way it happens. <laughs> you bail out, you, get, you free fall in your parachute, and then when uh, you get down to within three or 4,000 feet of the ground, you pull the rip cord and the parachute pops, and you, you land, and that's, uh, that's about the way it, it happens. Uh, I picked up a few wounds. I had a couple of slugs, one in my leg, and uh, oh, I had some lot like, 20 millimeter fragments in my, my hands and, and a couple cuts on my head, but that, it, they were minor, so it didn't make much difference. When I landed in my parachute, we were in occupied France, and there were quite a few Germans around. Obviously, uh, you've got to hide or they'll pick you up. And as I recall, I did. I got into the woods as deep as I could and, and hid, and, and they never caught me. And I hung around or laid out there for a day until things quietened down and then, and then contacted a, a French farmer or woodcutter. And I couldn't speak French, but he could see I was uh, an American flyer because I had my flying, flying gear on, leather jacket and flying suit. And, and uh, and he knew that I needed some kind of help, and he fortunately he went to the right people instead of turning me in and got me with the uh, the defense or the uh, resistance forces, the Maquis, who in turn took me and and under the wing for the next month, and I worked my way through on down through France, and finally went through the Pyrenees and went into Spain uh, in a neutral country. So I was interned uh, in a town of Lerida, and then. Uh, the, the American consulate came up and, and uh, talked to us and made sure we were an American and, and uh, then put us up in a hotel and gave us a money and, and we just bummed around there for about a month. And finally, uh, during that period of time of uh, May 1944, the, we were beginning to help Spain, who was running out of gasoline because they didn't have any petroleum products. And we were then begin trading gasoline uh, for American pilots that were in Spain. You know, there was uh, something like 2,600 airmen interned in Spain who either, you know, had made it through the Pyrenees or took their airplanes there and jumped out of them. And uh, the way we got out was that uh, the Spanish took us down to Gibraltar and turned us over to the British on the island of Gibraltar. And then finally the British were, you know, uh, flying airplanes from Gibraltar around the over around the tip of Spain and, and Portugal up to England, and, and I bummed a ride up on one of the airplanes and then went back to my squadron. Now, when he returns to England, having gotten through Spain on a program that was really a constant line of pilots who'd been shot down getting back to England, the Army did not want to let him go back into combat because when he escaped in France, he would have learned things about the French resistance and they didn't want to risk him getting shot down and tortured by the Germans and giving up important information about the resistance. But Jaeger was determined to get back into combat. So he took another friend of his, a bomber pilot, Captain Fred Glove. Now think about this. Here are these two guys appealing directly 
to the Supreme Allied Commander, General Eisenhower, and they argued, look, the Allies have invaded France, the resistance movement's now out in the open. If they were shot down, there was little or nothing they could do to reveal to the enemy. And so he goes back into combat with the personal intervention of Eisenhower, who, by the way, had to appeal back to Marshall in Washington to make sure that he had the authority to waive the requirement. So Ike waves the requirement, Jaeger's back flying, and on the 12th of October, 1944, he gets to be the first pilot in his group to make ace in a day. He had to be an ace by shooting down five aircraft. So he shot down five enemy aircraft in one mission. Now, two of his ace in a day kills, he scored without firing a shot because when he got into position against the Messerschmitt BF-109, the pilot of the airplane panicked, broke to starboard, and collided with his wingman. So without having fired a shot, he'd taken down two enemy planes. But listen to Jaeger's own description of what it was like to become an ace by shooting down five planes in one day. I was leading the whole fighter group, which means three squadrons. And we only had, we had two boxes of bombers to escort. Our fighter group did. So what I did, I stuck the other two squadrons, one on each box of bombers, and took my squadron and ranged about 80 miles out in front of the the bomber stream and I spotted 22 ME-109s in a formation climbing up out in front of the bombers out 80 to 100 miles to make a head-on pass and I stayed up sun where they couldn't see. I spotted just they were little specks. I had excellent eyes like I could watch things without them seeing me and I kept up sun from the from them with my squadron of 16 P-51s and uh Finally, when they leveled out and headed over towards the bottom, I just moved in behind them, down sun. And I got within 200 yards behind them, and I wouldn't even let my pilots, you know, they kind of spread out. We still had our drop tanks on because we wanted to keep as much fuel as we could. And I shot down the first two without even dropping my tanks. And when, of course, the explosions, when the airplanes blew up, then they all broke, and at that point, we punched our tanks off, and if the whole squadron broke up into, you know, in the elements, you know, wing wingman and his leader to support each other, and we got in a big old hairy dogfight, and I shot down, I don't know, uh, another guy. I was hammered him, and then a guy, his wingman, cut the power and dropped behind me, and this one blew up, and I broke into him, pulled out at about looked like about 50 feet before I hit him, and uh, and then another guy followed him to the deck and got him down low. And uh, then it's all over with, you know. You, you've left the fight, following the guy down. He come back and you look around, and my wingman was still with me. And then I picked up a couple more guys, you know, flying out, try to orient yourself, and then kind of fly around and pick up the bombers again and stay with them. So it's it. That's the way combat is, you know. A lot of a lot of shooting, a lot of high G's, a lot of turns, and you got to watch what you're doing. So it's uh, it's exciting. From BBC Radio Four, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Now, after the war, he stays in and he decides to keep learning. So he goes to the test pilot school in 1946. And he was chosen for what was called the X-1 program in the summer of 1947. And it's very funny and tells you a little bit about the U.S. Air Force in the modern world. The commercial test pilots who were being paid to do this for a living wanted a lot more money. And they didn't want to fly these very new, very different aircraft. Because these were aircraft designed to break the sound barrier. They were designed to do things no one had ever done before. And that's why they were called an X program for experiment. And so the pilots refused without higher pay. So the Air Force said fine and brought in, you know, regular Air Force officers who didn't get anything extra and said, here, you have a chance to do something really cool. And You might listen just a little bit about Yeager's description of how he ended up in the X-1 program. He said this when he was on David Letterman back in 1982. I was a fighter pilot in World War II in Mustangs. I came back in 1945 from the war and was assigned to right field as a maintenance officer in the fighter test section. And I went through the test pilot school in 1946, and then I was 
selected for the X-1 program in the summer of 47 after the bail test pilots had gotten into a hassle on bonus money and, uh, and probably because of my maintenance background and, and the air shows I used to put on. On October 14, 1947, he flew the XS-1 past the sound barrier. Now, this at the time was enormous impact, worldwide news. He became the world's first supersonic pilot in level flight. What made it kind of interesting, and tells you about Jaeger's toughness and his dedication, is that a couple of days before he was supposed to fly, he got knocked off his horse and he broke several ribs. And in fact, he was in so much pain. First of all, he went to a civilian doctor, not the military doctor, because he knew the military doctor would ground him and not allow him to fly. And he literally couldn't reach up and close the door once he got in the airplane. So a friend of his rigged a broomstick so that when he got in, he could use the broomstick to close the door because his friend understood how much pain he was in. So imagine this moment. And it tells you when I talk about American exceptionalism, the toughness, the determination, the continuous pursuit of excellence. And listen to Chuck's own description of this, which I think is just astonishing. And it uh, just so happens uh, that particular flight, I think, was on a Tuesday. Uh, on the weekends there at, Ed, at Miroc, it was called then, uh, we used to uh, go out to Poncho Barnes uh, or sort of a, she had a rodeo grounds and a swimming pool and motel and, and a good restaurant. You'd go out there and, and you know unwind. And I took Glennis out there. I think on a on a Saturday night, and and we loved to ride horses. So we went out after dinner and we're riding horses and chasing each other. And coming back, somebody had closed the gate and it was dark and I didn't see it. So my horse hit the fence and flipped me and I broke a couple of ribs. And uh, that was on a Saturday night. Sunday I moped around and. Then Monday, I had to go into the base, and, and I, I went to a, a local doctor there, and he said, we've got two, crack, two busted ribs. I'll tape you up. And, and it, it really didn't make that much difference in flying the airplane because it's not strenuous other than handling it with your, your hands and feet on the rudder pedals and, and the control surfaces and loading pressure domes and turning switches on, things like that. So, so uh, my only problem was... Uh, it was painful to get into the airplane because you had to come down a ladder and go through a little hole on the right side. But then the hard part was closing the door. Once old Jack Ridley came down the ladder and held the door against the right side, had a lever. It was really tough to, and it took both hands all you could do. And I couldn't handle it with my right side because handle. So he made me a, about a 10 inch long broomstick and I could stick in the end of the door handle, give me that mechanical advantage. And that's the way we solved the problem. So. But it really didn't, didn't make much difference. To show you the sort of instinctive, adventurous spirit that Jaeger had, having now already proven that he could fly faster than sound, in 1948, he becomes the first American to make a ground takeoff in a rocket-powered aircraft. Again, another experimental program. It's just remarkable to watch what they were doing and how they were doing it. The Navy also had a program involving what was called the Skyrocket, the D-558-2. And its pilot, Scott Crossfield, became the first team to reach twice the speed of sound. Now, Jaeger had already become famous reaching the speed of sound, and he'd gotten up to about 1,000 miles an hour, but they actually got faster. At that point, Ridley and Jaeger decided they would beat 
Crossfield speed record in a series of test flights that they dubbed Operation Naka Weep. Not only did they beat Crossfield, but they did it in time to spoil a celebration planned for the 50th anniversary of flight, in which Crossfield was to be called the fastest man alive. Well, Jaeger decided, no, he was the fastest man alive. However, in December of that year, he almost had a disaster. He was flying the Bell X-1A 1,650 miles per hour, and he became the first man to fly two and a half times the speed of sound. But at about Mach 2.4 at 80,000 feet, the plane spun out of control and was coming down rapidly, spinning on all three axes. He dropped 51,000 feet in 51 seconds. First of all, it's a good thing he was up at 80,000 feet when it started. But he dropped, think about this, 1,000 feet a second for 51 seconds. He stayed very calm. He regained control at 25,000 feet. And he went on to land the aircraft without any more incidents and just chalked it up as you know, part of the deal. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. nineteen fifty four he gets the Harmon Trophy Award from President Eisenhower for flying the X1A. Then he becomes a regular Air Force guy. May fifty five to july fifty seven, he commands the F eighty six Sabre equipped four hundred and seventeenth Fighter Bomber Squadron 
at Hahn Air Force Base in Germany. From 57 to 60, he commands the F-100D Super Sabre equipped 1st Fighter Day Squadron at George Air Force Base, California, which remember is the place he originally went to years and years before. And they also served at Morona Air Base in Spain. In 1961, he finally moved on from being a high school graduate. He graduated from the Air War College at Maxwell Air Force Base in June of 61. He became the first commandant of the U.S. Air Force Aerospace Research Pilot School, which produced astronauts for NASA and the U.S. Air Force. And in December 63 to January 64, he completed five flights in the NASA M2F1 lifting body, which was an experimental aircraft. An accident during a test flight in one of the school's NF-104s put an end to his record attempts. In December 63, while testing the experimental Lockheed Starfighter NF-104 rocket augmented aerospace trainer at over twice the speed of sound, his aircraft went out of control at 108,000 feet, nearly 21 miles up, and crashed. He became the first pilot to make an emergency ejection in the full pressure suit needed for high-altitude flights. So imagine that. You're 21 miles above the Earth. Your plane is in a crisis. You're going to crash. And you have to stay very calm and very cool because that's why you're wearing the full pressure suit for precisely this kind of an emergency. But you're shooting yourself out of the plane at a really high speed, at a really high altitude. Once again, he lands, goes on with business as usual. I flew a flight in the morning with a pressure suit on, and uh, I think at 108,000 feet, and we measured the, the rotation. And then I uh, landed and uh, wanted to make another flight after lunch. I didn't get out of my pressure suit because if you get out of it, it's wet and you can't get back in. And uh, made another flight at about 1.30 in the afternoon at uh, 104,000 feet. And, it, and for some reason, we had dual thrusters on the bottom of the nose and dual thrusters on the top. Now, we don't know. We may have had one thruster fail, but at 104,000 feet, when I came into the atmosphere at 50 degrees angle of attack, uh, I couldn't get the nose down on the airplane. And see, you've already shut your engine down way down here, but the engine's still windmilling as it goes across the top. And that's where you get the hydraulic pressure that runs the flight control systems. You're, horizontal stabilizer, the ailerons, and the rudder. When you come over the top, obviously, the engine is windmilling, and it's, it's gradually slowing down, but the engine is still turning over, giving you hydraulic pressure, which runs a horizontal stabilizer and for pitch control and the ailerons and the rudder. And uh, basically, what happened on previous flights, uh, when you re-enter and force the nose down with hydrogen peroxide thrusters, attitude controllers, then you come back into the atmosphere, nose first, then you start getting air through the intake ducts of your airplane, and that keeps the engine windmilling, and you bring the airplane on down to about 40,000 feet and level out, and hit the igniter, and then come out of, out of, out of idle, with your, out of stopcock with your throttle into idle, and that gives you fuel and igniter work, and then you start your engine up again. But if it doesn't work, then you're going down dead stick into Rogers Dry Lake, which I did three or four times. But on what happens on what happened on this flight was that when the airplane came into the atmosphere at about a 50 degree angle of attack, and I couldn't get the nose down, the airplane 
pitched up and went into a flat spin. And uh, what you realize now is the airplane's in a flat spin and the engine RPM, because there's no air going through the intake ducts, the engine stops. And when that stops, then you no longer have hydraulic pressure to run the horizontal stabilizer or the aileron or rudder. So there's no, you're in a no-win situation. That's exactly what it is. You sit there, so you get, but you have one other alternative. That's eject. Well, uh, I also had a drag chute on the airplane that we used for landing. And when I went through, the airplane was in a very flat, slow spin, and I had my pressure suit on. It was in, inflated, and I was sat there and watched, and and I was talking to Bud Anderson, who was chasing me in a T thirty-three. He was down, way down low, looking at me coming. And I was talking to the space position branch, the guys that were recording data, and said, "I, you know, I got a, I got a real problem. They had just no way of getting this thing out of a spin." And so, well, as I went through thirty thousand feet, I went, I deployed the drag chute which you normally deploy for like well when I did the drag chute comes out and it popped the nose down on the airplane but there's a link that the drag chutes hooked to the airplane with that designed a shear at 180 miles an hour that's in case the drag chute comes out accidentally while you're flying it won't stop the airplane well it just so happened when a nose went down you know, when as I went through 180 miles an hour, the drag chute sheared and the parachute released, and the airplane pitched back flat because there's you know 180 mile an hour going through the intake ducts not going to give you engine RPM. It takes about 300 mile an hour. When this happened, the airplane flipped back flat, and I don't think it turned. It just fell at 100 miles an hour. Now you've got you've got the egress systems. You know, you know them intimately, and a lot, and it pays off because a lot of times you have to use them in a semi-conscious state. And I knew my rocket seat that I was riding. I knew its capabilities, so I rode it down to about 6,000 feet, which is not low, and went ahead and ejected. Well, the rocket seat blows you out of the airplane and gives you about a hundred mile an hour velocity away from the airplane. Well, it just so happened that. The airplane was falling at about 100 miles an hour. So when I used the seat, the airplane just fell away from the seat, obviously. The, the seat sat there, and then two seconds after you leave the airplane, uh, the lap belt blows open on the seat, which is what holds you in the seat. You've got uh, leg restrainers, cables that hold your heels into the seat f for flailing when you come out at high speed. And you know, a lot of things happen. Uh, so when this... I sat and watched the seat go through a sequencing, you know, knowing when it was going to happen. And finally, uh, the lap belt popped open and and there's a butt kicker that kicks you out of the seat. I felt that go and it and also my cable cutters cut my leg restrainer cables. And I fell through when this happened, then your F5 release on your parachute is armed. And if as you fall through 14,000 feet, the chute will open. Well, I was below 14,000 feet, obviously, so the chute opened the minute that the, the F-5 release said to open, and it did. But the problem was I didn't have enough velocity through the air. See, I was just starting to fall again to pull that quarter bag, which is on the canopy of your parachute. And the reason that bag is on the canopy is that when you eject at high speeds, four or 500 miles an hour, it keeps your canopy on the parachute from popping immediately. It pulls off and lets it reef 
slowly. Well, that little pilot shoot on that quarterback needs about 60 mile an hour to pull it off the quarterback. And this is, you know, I don't know anything like this is going on. All I know is that, that I'm free fire. My chute has released, but I haven't got a canopy slowing me down because I can feel it flopping in the breeze. Well, by the time, at about this time, the seat, you know, which kicked me out up here, it also is falling, and it became entangled in the shroud lines of the parachute. I don't know this either, uh, but this is the way it happened. And when finally I picked up enough speed, 60 or 70 miles an hour falling, with the canopy up there following that that quarterback came off, the canopy popped, and when it popped, a damn seat that's entangled in the shroud lines, I'm falling about like this, and it flopped me up like this. Well, the seat hit me in the face piece of my pressure suit, and what hit me was the rocket, the butt end of the rocket on the seat, which still had glowing propellant burning. And when this happened, uh, it popped glowing propellant onto the rubber seals of my pressure suit. And you're in 100% oxygen. And when it did, it ignited. And then you're feeding 100% oxygen, and, you, and it's like a blowtorch. And, and fortunately, uh, uh, when this happened, the, the visor on my pressure suit was busted and fragged and it cut my eye down and my socket filled with blood so it didn't hurt my eyeball. The flame, but I got burned pretty bad on my neck and shoulder. And, and it's very difficult to breathe. And the only thing that I knew, uh, I was stunned from the blow. I knew I had to get the visor up on my pressure suit helmet. There's a, a, a button on the right. You push it and then you raise the visor. It's the way you get your visor up on most pressure suits. I knew I had to get it up off get that visor up to shut the oxygen flow from my kit that was in the back of my pressure suit to get all this fire out. And so I did that. When this happened, then I swung a couple of times and I hit the ground. When this happened, I couldn't see too much. And it was, I was having trouble breathing because of a lot of smoke and fire. But as it worked out, uh, when I was, you know, didn't. The way you look at you either do or you don't, and I, I don't. Uh, didn't get killed uh, in the, the flap. So I stood up and Andy buzzed me. But a helicopter, since I've been talking to him on the way down, took f four minutes from uh, the first spin to impact. And uh, they had a helicopter off the ground with a flight surgeon aboard, doctor. At Edwards, and he got out there, well, probably within five minutes from the time I landed, and picked me up and, and gave me a shot of morphine and took me back to the hospital. And it worked on me and cut my pressure suit off. That's that's about it. In July of '66, he becomes a full colonel, commands the 405th Fighter Wing in the Philippines, flew 127 air support missions, and trained bomber pilots. In February '68, he's assigned command of the 4th Tactical Fighter Wing at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, and he led the McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom II Wing in South Korea during the Pueblo crisis. June 1969, Yeager is promoted to Brigadier General and was assigned in July as the Vice Commander of the 17th Air Force. Now think about this. Here's a guy who enlisted as a high school graduate, serves his country very ably for a period of 29 years, ends up as a Brigadier General, as the Vice Commander of an entire Air Force, and then moves on, becomes an advisor to the Pakistani Air Force on behalf of the U.S. government. And in 73, 
he's elected to the Aviation Hall of Fame. Now, this is a guy who's having just a heck of a career. He continues to fly for the Air Force and to fly for NASA. He's a consulting test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base. In 76, Congress catches up with him, and they create a special Congressional Silver Medal for Bravery. He's the only American ever awarded the Congressional Medal for Service in Peacetime. And in the late 80s, early 90s, he set a number of light general aircraft performance records for speed, range, and endurance, even though he'd been flying his whole life. He loved it. He continued flying. He conducted flights on behalf of Piper Aircraft. And on one flight, Jaeger performed an emergency landing as a result of fuel exhaustion. On another, he took the Piper's turboprop Cheyenne 400LS to a time-to-height record, got to 35,000 feet in 16 minutes, which exceeded the climb performance of a Boeing 737. He's moved from the fastest airplane in the world. He's moved from great fighter aircraft, and now he's still staying active, working on private planes. In 1985, President Reagan gives him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Chuck Yeager. A hero in war and peace, Charles Yeager has served his country with dedication and courage beyond ordinary measure. On October 14, 1947, in a rocket plane, which he named Glamorous Glennis after his wife, Chuck Yeager became the first human being to travel faster than the speed of sound, and in doing so, showed to the world the real meaning of the right stuff. Finally, on October 14, 1997, the 50th anniversary of his historic flight past Mach 1, breaking the sound barrier. He flew a brand new glamorous Glennis III, an F-15D Eagle, past Mach 1. So this is a guy who's had an amazing life. And finally, this year, he passed away on December 7th. I just think that this is one of the great examples of American exceptionalism. He kept growing. He kept learning. He kept pushing the margins. He never gave up. He never slowed down. And he didn't worry much about status or much about academic achievement or certification. He just went out and did things. And as a result, he made America a much more remarkable country. He served his country in a series of wars. Perfect person to introduce young people to and say, you know, if you have the guts and you're willing to work hard, it's amazing what you can achieve in America. And that, I think, is what we really owe Chuck Yeager more than anything, not just for his service to the country, but for the very model of freedom and of what a courageous free person can do that anybody can learn and anybody can apply. Sir, over there.
You can read more about Chuck Yeager's extraordinary life on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Slow, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.